Today's sermon will be from Psalm 32. You can open your Bibles to Psalm 32 and follow along. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind us, behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when my was kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the, sin, the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not teach him, reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with, with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Cynthia. Good morning, church. Uh, well, a couple of things before I jump in. One, it is Family Worship Sunday, so the kids will not be uh, leaving this morning. And so if you've not uh, picked it up by now, our passage is weighty this morning. And so parents, you'll have lots to talk to your kids about. And kids, you'll have lots to ask your parents about. And we praise God for this because we do not apologize for the, the beauty and the truth of God's word. Uh, and secondly, um, if you're looking for a church to call home, our Restoration Church, we have a membership introduction class in a couple of weeks. Uh, if you want more information about that, you can come talk to me or look at our app or whatever, but uh, we'd love to tell you more about our church. Uh, well, Nathan remains on sabbatical, and so I will preach uh, again this morning. Um, and I want to start with a news article, the title, Perils of Perfection. The tagline, Social Media is Ramping Up the Pressure to Be Perfect. The article goes on to say, turn on your social media feed, scroll through the endless photos and posts that are so often accompanied by hashtags, blessed, loved, squad goals, inspiration, no filter. They go on and on and on. And soon you start comparing yourself to all those images of happy, joyful people on vacations, all those people happily sweaty from their latest workouts. Those who seem to be in, what the most, be in the most loving relationships and the cleanest houses with the most well-pruned gardens, with the most expensive cars in their garages, which drive them to their fulfilling jobs and come home again to their endlessly cherubic children. On social media, everyone seems flawless. End quote. Right? So typically social media are highlight reels. We post our best experiences, our best outfits, our best meals even before we eat them. We don't show pictures of everyone fighting at the dinner table. 
How many posts are sobering self-assessments with hashtag selfish or hashtag immoral? I'm not suggesting you go do this, by the way. I'm just trying to make a point. That we often believe the lie that happiness comes from portraying the appearance of perfection. Yet deep down, we all know we're not perfect. And it's hard to be open and honest, so we're tempted to settle for an airbrushed Pinterest perfection of a life. We're scared to be fully known because then we think we won't be truly loved. And when we're truly loved, we don't really think we are because we're not fully known. But what if? What if your deepest, darkest secrets could be known and you'd still be loved and cherished? What if the grungiest parts of your soul were exposed and you were loved and you were liked? Wouldn't that be good news? Well, that's what Psalm 32 offers us. Psalm 32 is one of seven penitential psalms. That is, it's a psalm focused on repentance and confession. And you'll, you'll notice as you look there in your Bible, the, the superscript says a mascal of David. That term mascal simply means something like instruction, teaching. So this psalm is a psalm of teaching on repentance, and it's written by David. That's King David. And if you remember the life of David, he had some good stuff, but he had some junk too. Uh, if you want to know more about that, you can go read 2 Samuel 11 this afternoon. It's a devastating account of David willfully committing immoral acts, taking advantage of and violating the most vulnerable. And for nearly a year, David tried to hide his sin until he was confronted. We, we don't know if Psalm 32 is written in directly in response to this incident with, with a guy named Bathsheba, like Psalm 51 was. But nevertheless, knowing David's background helps us appreciate what he writes here. And, and as a pastoral sidebar, let me step over here for a second. Psalm 32 addresses most directly sins we commit. But so many of you here this morning are hurting and broken because of what's been done to you. Scripture speaks to that. There's hope and there's healing in what's been done to you. If you're, so if you're more like Bathsheba this morning, you're aware of the brokenness, the, the hardship done to you. There's hope and there's healing in that. And we, we preach on that. But that's not the specific focus of the psalm this morning, though you'll still find hope in this psalm. Psalm 32. As you read it, you notice you come across that term Selah three times. It's likely a musical term that simply means pause and consider. So it's saying do what we talked about last week. Stop and meditate on the word. Don't just rush past it. As I mentioned, Psalm 32 calls us to truly weigh what it says, to meditate on it. And here's, here's what it does. It confronts us with the weight of our sin and comforts us with the wonders of grace. Psalm 32 reveals the joy that flows from confessing our sins to God and receiving forgiveness, and it's contrasted with the sorrows of covering our sins. So in verses 1 and 2, you see the main idea. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. That's the main idea of the psalm. So if you go home, like, what did you talk about? Well, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Then the rest of the psalm prevents 
presents two options. We can hide from God or we can hide in God. So that's how we'll walk through the text this morning. I'll establish the main point in verses 1 and 2. Then we'll evaluate what it looks to hide from God, verses 3 and 4. And then what it looks like to hide in God, 5 through 11. The joy of forgiveness. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So Psalm 32 starts with that same word that we saw last week in Psalm 1, the word blessed. And this reminds us yet again of the whole purpose of the Psalter, the the Psalms. It's about the blessed life. The happy life, the life that that looks at God and trusts in God and and helps us navigate the hardships and the happy times of this life while trusting in God and hoping in the world to come. That's what the Psalms are doing for us. And Psalm 1, if you remember, defines the happy life as a life that delights in God's word and meditates on God's ways. Psalm 1 says the happy life is the life that gives itself to Scripture because Scripture points us to the Son, Jesus. It's a wonderful message, but it's weighty. In Psalm 1, there's this idea of perfection, always choosing the right path, always delighting in the law of the Lord. I don't do that. So what hope is there for me? I'm guessing you don't do that either. You you don't always choose the right path. You don't always delight in God's word. So what hope is there? If that's the blessed life, well, Psalm 32 gives us the answer. And just so we don't miss it, it doubles up on that word blessing in verse 1 and 2. Happiness, the blessed life, is not not a matter of being sinless, but being forgiven. Psalm 32 is a counterbalance, as it were, to Psalm 1. So in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32, we see the three words for rebellion, transgression, iniquity, sin. These are the the Old Testament words used most often for God-belittling, glory-robbing behavior that flows from a twisted heart. So transgression is open, willful rebellion. Sin is that idea of missing the mark. We all fall short of God's divine standard. Iniquity. Iniquity refers to guilt or perversion, corruption. And as you read the Old Testament, you'll also notice iniquity can hint at sins that have been done before that impact us. You'll read the iniquity of your fathers. And so David is piling up these words to show our rebellion is multifaceted. Whether it's big or small, conscious or inadvertent, sin that we do, sin committed against us, we miss the mark, we We sin by what we do and by what we leave undone. We're creative in the way we dismiss God's rule and diminish God's glory. And all of this reminds us that sin is far bigger than just what we do. It's deeper than our actions. It involves our affections, sin does. So we rebel against God not just by violating His law, but doubting His love. And disordering our love. Sin is deeper than what we do. Is this the way you think about sin? Is this your idea of sin? Rebellion, transgression. So we can't just clean ourselves up. Because it's deeper 
than the outside. So trying to clean our sin up is like telling a two-year-old to clean up after spaghetti dinner. What does it do? It just moves the mess around. Even with good intentions. It just moves the mess around. So it is with us. And did you notice there is no if in this psalm? It flat out assumes that we have rebelled against God. See, sometimes we like to justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. We think, well, I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. But comparing our sinfulness to another person's is like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon arguing who can jump further. Who cares? It doesn't matter if I can jump three more feet than you when the gap is ten miles. Scripture calls us to measure the depth of our rebellion not by looking horizontally, but by looking vertically at God. And when we do that, we all see that we fall woefully short. Myself the foremost. So what do we do? Well, isn't it glorious that David didn't just give us three words for sin, but he also gave us three words for forgiveness? Praise God, right? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Just like he does with sin, David stacks these terms to highlight the absoluteness of God's forgiveness. Forgiven, that is literally carried away. Removal of sin and guilt. Covered. The ugliness of our sin is covered. It's hidden under divine atonement. Not counted. This is the language of accounting. So the the record books in heaven have, have no entry of wrongdoing. The debt is gone forever. Removal of sin's guilt and shame. No record of sin's wrong. So what does this tell us about God? Yes, God is majestically holy, but He is mercifully compassionate. The reason God is forgiving is not found in us, it's found in Him because of His amazing grace, His rich mercy, His immeasurable kindness. Sometimes we think of God like a cosmic drill sergeant who is just waiting for us to step out of line so He can yell at us. But we don't have to compel God. We don't have to manipulate God so He'll reluctantly pardon us. We confess because of God's grace. So in our confession of sin, we're not forcing God to love us. We confess because God's love already flows to us. So listen to how God Himself describes Himself to His people back in the book of Exodus. The Lord, the God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Sound familiar? So God's forgiving love flows from who He is in His very big being. His forgiveness is not in reaction to our goodness and it's not restricted by our badness. But students of the Bible know we keep reading. And that verse doesn't end there. It goes on to say, but, will by, but who will by no means clear the guilty? 
How does that work? How does God forgive yet not clear the guilty? It sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? I'm infinitely loving and want to forgive you, and I'm infinitely just, and I can never let sin go unpunished. It's not a contradiction. It's unfathomable love. It's not a contradiction. It's a cross. See, the happiness of our forgiveness and the holiness of God's justice meet at an old rugged cross where Christ was crucified. Jesus Christ is the completely righteous man of Psalm 1. And he removes our guilt by taking it upon himself. Jesus Christ covers us by shedding his perfect blood. Jesus Christ, you know why there's no record of debt in heaven? Because Christ took it on himself at the cross. That we might have his righteousness. So Jesus hung on the cross, resolving the tension of God's infinite justice and forgiving grace. And placed in a tomb, he rose three days later, justifying, cleansing, blotting out every sin of every person who would repent and trust in him alone to be reconciled back to God. This is the good news. The blessed forgiveness comes not from attempts at goodness, but at God's abundant grace. In fact, Paul picks up this very psalm in the book of Romans, chapter 6. And he writes this. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis. Then he goes on in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Now, what's he going to do? He's going to quote Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts not his sin. See, what David, David and Abraham look forward to, we look back at. Abraham was justified how? By his works? No. By his, by his hope, his faith. He was counted righteous by faith alone in God's promise of a coming Messiah. What about David? David was forgiven by faith alone in the promise of a come, come, sin come, a sin-bearing Savior that was to come. It's his promise. It's his faith. And so it is with me. I'm forgiven by faith alone in Christ alone. And so it is with you. You're forgiven by faith alone in Christ alone. And so with this reality before us, we have two options. We can hide from God or we can hide in God. Verses 3 and 4, we see what it looks like to hide from God. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy Upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David gets a whole lot more personal here. The language shifts to I and me and I as he vividly remembers the dark valley of sin's bondage. He says, I kept silent. So there was a time when David tried to hide his sin. And what happened? There was great freedom and liberation and joy and happiness because nobody knew that he was imperfect. No. My bones wasted away. Through my groaning, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
Do you feel that anguish and the agony in David's soul? It's emotional. It's psychological. It's physical. It is spiritual. And here's why. God created us to be spiritual and physical. And as I showed last week from the Psalms, He created us to be emotional. We're complex people. Amen? Yeah. We're, our whole body is connected and intertwined, the physical, the spiritual, the emotional, the psychological, all of it. And so our life is not like a bedroom where we can take all of our junk and stuff it in a closet. And just hope it doesn't come popping out. No. We can't do that. And so Christian brothers and sisters, Psalm 32 is telling us unconfessed sin is like a spiritual sandbag weighing down your soul. Unconfessed sin is like standing under the blazing sun until your energy is drained and your soul is dehydrated. Go contrast that with Psalm 1. And some of us know what this is like. We thought we could run from God. We thought that we could manage our sin on our own. And all the time, and thought, and energy, and worry it took to conceal our endless sin left us empty and deflated. Perhaps the best word is we felt spiritually suffocated. Maybe that's not past tense for you. Maybe it's you right now. You're willfully pursuing immorality, whether it's physically or virtually. You're lying to your spouse about financial issues. You're deceiving a roommate or a family member. You refuse to forgive that person and bitterness is beginning to decay your soul. You're trying to live two lives. One that's proper and buttoned up for all your Christian circles. And then one that's rebellious with your non-Christian friends. Your life inside and outside the home are hypocritical. At home, you're angry, you're harsh, you're selfish toward your spouse and children. But outside, happy-go-lucky. Psalm 32 is telling you, unconfessed sins bring bondage to your soul. Unconfessed sin kills your joy. For those truly trusting in Christ, while sin cannot cause you to lose your salvation, it will cause you to lose the joy of it. Trying to hide from God does not bring the joy you truly want. In fact, trying to hide from God only brings His divine discipline. It's what David talks about in verse 4. For day and night, your hand, notice the reason, your hand, God, was upon me. That's why David's soul is in turmoil. It's poetic language grasping at God's sovereign, disciplining grace at work in David. So God kindly lets David experience the misery of his sin so that he might come back to him. This reminds me of a New York Times article I shared with you when we preached the book of Judges. Some of you may remember it, but the, the article was The Hazards of Growing Up Painlessly. It, was, it tells the story of Ashlyn, 
She has a genetic disorder that literally prevents her from experiencing pain. So when she was two years old, her mom literally had to bandage up her hands to keep her from biting the flesh off of them. When she was a little bit older, she was outside with her dad. Dad was pressure washing the house. Took his eyes off of Ashlyn. He turned around and her bare hands were gripping the hot engine of the pressure washer. The article says, her life story offers an amazing snapshot of how complicated a life can get without the guidance of pain. Pain is a gift, and she doesn't have it. So Restoration Church family, when you feel the pain of your sin, rejoice that God loves you enough to draw you back to himself. God graciously, ferociously at times, and tenderly frustrates us in our sin. We may not like the agony and the anguish, but it's a good gift. Hebrews 12 tells us God is a good father who disciplines those whom he loves. So here's the truth. God loves you so much, Restoration Church, that he promises terrible things to you if you will not find happiness in him. That's how much he loves you. If this sounds weird to you, if you feel no pain, no remorse, no misery because of your sin, can I plead with you not to confuse this absence with God's approval? One of the scariest things that could ever happen to us is that when we hide from God, we run from God, He gives us over to our rebellious passions. Without conviction from the Spirit, This is not a sign of God's blessing, but judgment. You can go read Romans 1. Or as it says here, this is not the path of lasting happiness. Verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. So there's some fun now, but it's only going to end in eternal sorrow. And so, so can I plead with you on the basis of Psalm 32 to come to a greater pleasure found in God's forgiveness? Verses 3 and 4 recount the foolishness of trying to hide our sin from God. But like a prodigal running home, David comes to his senses in verse 5. And the rest of the psalm, David focused on not hiding from God, but hiding in God. And, And real joy, real happiness comes not from covering our sins, but from confessing them. That's what David gets at. He says, I'm going to now hide in God. What does that look like? Repentance to God, verses 5 and 6. He takes refuge in God, verse 7. He receives instruction from God, verse 8 and 9. And then he rejoices in God, verses 10 and 11. That's how we'll walk through the rest of the psalm. And just to set your expectations, I'm just going to spend the most of my time on that first point. Because I think it's the emphasis of the psalm. So I'm like, oh my goodness, he's going until 1 o'clock today. Maybe, but probably not. Hide in God by repenting to God, verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Again, notice the personal language here. I and my eight times. Divine forgiveness requires personal confession. David does not try to sugarcoat his language. He takes full responsibility. My sin, my iniquity, my transgressions. 
He names it. He owns it. He does not minimize his sin. He does not excuse his rebellion. He does not shift the blame. He bears his soul honestly before the Lord. And I think that's what he's getting back in verse 2 when he says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. David is not playing games. He's not confessing just enough to kind of make people think he's bad, but then holding a whole lot back. There is no deceit in his soul. He's bearing it all, confessing it, bringing it out into the light. He acknowledges his sin is real and wrong, and it grieves God, and it grieves him. And notice he doesn't just say, nobody's perfect, I'm a sinner too. He gets specific. Acknowledge my sin, confess my transgressions. There's a plurality and a specificity here. So true repentance, true confession, doesn't just offer a vague generality. I'm sorry if I offended you. It gets specific. I'm sorry, I sinned. I confess that I... To savor the sweetness of forgiveness, we need to taste the bitterness of of specific sins. When was the last time you confessed a specific sin to God? Or to another person? If that's the only thing you were forgiven of is specific confession, what would you be forgiven of? I'm not saying that's the only thing God forgives. He knows our hearts are deceitfully wicked. We can't even understand ourselves. He's trying to make a point. So if we're honest, if you're like me, we're tempted to excuse and minimize it by using soft words, aren't we? I'm not selfish, I'm strong-willed. I don't lack faith in God, I just like to be in control of everything. I'm picky, I'm not ungrateful. We even come up with terms like hangry. To excuse our behavior as if a little food would cure the anger lurking in our hearts. Think about it. I could give a longer list, but here are a few. We reduce immorality to a fling. We make lying a fib. We turn gossip into a prayer request. It makes us feel good in the moment, but it only reduces our ultimate joy in the cross. Because Jesus did not go to the cross because I am a grumpy, moody, picky, high-strung person. Jesus gave up his life because I'm a selfish, angry, ungrateful, immoral, prideful man. Minimizing sin takes the bitterness out of it so that it becomes more palatable to, to us. But as the saying goes, until sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. And so Psalm 32 pleads us with call sin what it is to savor the sweetness of Christ. This is the joy of forgiveness. So why you often hear us say repentance is not a rude intrusion crippling your joy, but a lavish invitation completing your joy. Because repentance leads us back to the sweet fellowship of Jesus. Repentance means turning away from our sin and trusting God is gracious enough to forgive us and good enough to be better than our sin. David has nothing of his own he can use to bargain with God, and neither do we. But here's the good news. No matter what you've done, no matter how messed up your past is, You can turn to God and cry out for forgiveness. None of us are beyond the reach of God's mercy this morning. And when I say this morning, I mean this morning right now. 
Notice, there is no delay between David's repentance and God's forgiveness. He confesses his rebellion and the next words are what? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Done. Complete. There is no probationary period. There is no ritual. There is no priest to go to. There is no special place to go to. Complete, immediate forgiveness of sin upon confession and repentance. Hallelujah. Did you notice that after verse 5, the words for sin are not even mentioned again in the psalm? They're gone, removed, not recorded. As far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. There is now, now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace that he did what? He lavished it upon us. Lavished it upon us. The only thing bigger than David's sin in this psalm is God's grace. There's a story told of a Sunday school teacher who was teaching the kids. Kids, you can listen up to this one. And the teacher was teaching her about how the Lord sees everything. And so she asked the class, Is there anything God cannot see? And to her surprise, the little girl raised her hand. Yeah? Do you think there's something God cannot see? The teacher asked the little girl. The little girl replied, yes, ma'am. I know one thing God cannot see. God cannot see my sin when it's covered by the blood of Jesus. That little girl had good theology. How about you? Do you feel there's something in your life that's unforgivable? Do you think there's something so grievous that God cannot, and even if He could, He wouldn't forgive you? See, some of you are being blackballed by Satan this morning. And he's whispering in your ear right now that whatever you've done, It's unforgivable. Or whatever's been done to you, you're so dirty that God wouldn't want to. He's blackmailing you. And on the basis of Psalm 32, I say, don't believe his lies. The vilest of sin, the smuggest of self-righteousness can be forgiven when we come to God with a faith-filled confession and heartfelt repentance, trusting Christ alone is enough. Hallelujah. See, your sin might surprise you, but it does not surprise God. And Jesus is enough. Restoration Church, let's keep reminding each other of this good news. See, it would be easy to look past the horizontal aspect of David's confession. But he did write this down for everyone else to read, by the way. So there is a vertical aspect, but there's also a horizontal aspect to David's confession. So let's be a church, by God's grace, that puts away plastic smiles and airbrush perfection. Can we do that? And I praise God for so many ways that you do this well. But let's be a church that talks openly and honestly about our sin while not being defined by it. Let's be a church that points each other to the cross and the empty tomb and Jesus who's reigning and returning. 
Let's be a church that admits our imperfections. And so here's the truth, brothers and sisters. God has given us everything in His Word and in this gospel community that we need to help each other walk in the light of the gospel. You do not have to hide in the darkness alone. By God's grace, may our community groups, our disciple relationships, our parenting, our Restoration Kids teaching be filled with transparency and vulnerability as we help each other savor the grace poured upon us in Christ. Let's remind each other that maturity in Christ is not just measured by the absence of sin, but the presence of continual repentance. It's David's instruction in verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Here's what David is saying. If this is who God is, he's gracious, he's forgiving, then let's all go to him in prayer for repentance right now. David is pleading with us not to presume upon God's grace and delay our repentance. Hide in God by repenting now. So people can be lulled into thinking sin is not that bad. That it's only as dangerous as a dry riverbed. But suddenly and without warning, you can get swept away in the rush of great waters. And David is saying continual repentance brings sure rescue. I'm reminded of Hebrews 3.13 that says, Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, one of great, Satan's greatest tricks is to get you to agree to repent tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow never comes. Every day you wake up, what day is it? It's today. God is not found in tomorrow. God is found in today. So when the Holy Spirit pricks your conscience, when conviction of sin comes, do not delay. There is an urgency in this passage. Hide in God by repenting now. Because if you perpetually delay repentance, it may not be God who you're deceiving, but yourself. As one pastor says, unconfessed sin is like a deadly sleeping pill that knocks you out of your senses so you can no longer smell the sweet aroma of Christ. And God in His kindness has given us Psalm 32 this morning as a smelling salt to wake us up to the aroma of Jesus. So hide in God by repenting to Him now. And hide in God by taking refuge in God Himself. Verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So when we repent of our sin, we're not just forgiven, but we're restored back to God. True forgiveness always results in fellowship. Do you notice the threefold you here? Speaking of God. You, God. You, God. You, God. So David's gaze is not just on what he can get from God, but who he has in God. And he's saying, listen, when, when I repent, and then, then the lies of the world attack, when the, the battle cry of the enemy is heard, when the temptation to run back to sin's bondage is strong, I'm going to hide in you, God. I'm going to take refuge in you. You are a hiding place for me. I'm going to take refuge in what you say about me. 
So in Christ, Christian, you're cherished, you're loved, you're liked. In Christ, you're a beloved son, you're a beloved daughter. In Christ, you're fully known and truly loved. Hide in that. In Christ, God surrounds you with shouts of deliverance. He's not against you. He is for you, Christian brother and sister. Take refuge in God's promises. God has delivered you from sin. And he will deliver you to heaven. He will never leave you or forsake you. Soon he will send Jesus to restore all things back to the way they're supposed to be. No sin, no shame, no sorrow, no disease, no death. Take refuge in that. Hide in that. And when you do, you'll move on just as David does to gladly receive instruction from God. So hide in God by receiving his instruction. Verse 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. So these verses could be David giving instructions to the godly on how to live wisely. Others think that it's the Lord himself breaking in, speaking directly to David and all the readers of the psalm. I think it's the latter. I think, I think it's the Lord breaking in, primarily because of that phrase, my eye upon you. If you keep reading in Psalm 33, you come across this. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. But either way, ultimately, it's the Lord's instruction, Psalm 1, that leads to the path of joy and happiness. That's what he's saying. David's basically requoting Psalm 1 here. And so gladly receive God's word, delight in God's ways. Don't be like the unruly horse or stubborn mule. So when David saw Bathsheba, you know what happened? He became like a wild horse galloping towards sin. And then, he he acted like a stubborn mule refusing and kicking against God's call of repentance. But God used the sorrows of sin in verse 4 as the bitten bridle of verse 9 to bring David back. But God would rather not use the bitten bridle. He doesn't want to have to do that. But he will. And here's what's important. Notice what the goal of getting the horse and mule to do the right... It's not just to do the right thing. Notice what the goal is. Look at the end of verse 9. So that what? It will stay near. That's the goal. Nearness. God doesn't just demand our obedience. He wants our nearness. That's the goal. Gladly receiving instruction from God is intimacy with God. It's friendship. It's fellowship. It's nearness. God doesn't just want to cover our sins. He wants to so shape our character that we become more like Jesus and enjoy triune fellowship forever and ever. That's awesome. That's so much more than cold, legal forgiveness, isn't it? It's warm, inviting fellowship now and forever. And when this happens, we'll see with all the more clarity what God has done and is doing, and we'll rejoice. Verse 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
the foolish, the, the wicked who live in unconfessed sin will only reap sorrow. But what about those who trust in the Lord? They're surrounded by steadfast love. That's God's special covenant love. His relentless, extravagant, unfailing love. So we're drowned by many waters of sorrow or drenched in the oceans of steadfast love. And notice the contrast here is not between the wicked and the moral. That's not it. The contrast is between the wicked and those who trust in the Lord. That's massively important. So righteousness is not matter a first of doing. Righteousness is first a matter of trusting. It's critical. The Psalms have these categories of wicked and righteous. It's not wicked and moral. And the difference is where we place our trust. And so the righteous trust not in human achievement to earn favor with God, but humbly acknowledge their sin and enjoy the blessing of forgiveness from God. And because of this, they rejoice. The burden of guilt is released. The joy and bliss with God rushes in. And so this psalm started with a threefold statement that happy is the one who's forgiven. Do you see how it ends? With a threefold command to rejoice. The happy life comes not from perfection, but humbly admitting our sinful imperfection and rejoicing in the God who is perfect. That's where it comes. So the promise of Psalm 32 is that we can be fully known, the good, the bad, the ugly, and truly loved, now and forever. So what will you do? What will you do? Will you try to cover your sin and hide from God? Or will you confess your sin and hide in God? If you've never truly confessed your rebellion against God, would you do that this morning? That's you. You can come talk to me. You can talk to the person who brought you. But confess your sin directly to God. If you've been hiding a sin from God, you've been hiding a sin from others, the Spirit is calling you right now to repent, to not delay. And for those of you that are walking in the joy of continual repentance, can I just get you to celebrate the fellowship you have with God? Right? Praise God. He's your friend. Near, sweet fellowship. The steadfast love of the Lord surrounds you. I'll end with words we're getting ready to sing. From the song, His Mercy is More. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this glorious truth. That though our sins are many, your mercy is more. And in that we rejoice. Give us the gift of repentance and rejoicing in Christ this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.